there are many, many things that different denominations of Christians disagree on. Would that be true? As a matter of fact, that's why there are so many different denominations, because they've differed on some matters of one kind or another. But there are five things that every Orthodox Christian believes, no matter if they're Presbyterians or if they're Baptists or if they're Methodists or whatever they may be. There are five things that they all agree on. They all start with the letter V. Uh, they don't necessarily, but they, I'm starting them with the letter V to kind of help you remember them. And the first one is what I call the verbal inspiration of the Scripture. That is, we believe that the Bible is God's Word. And uh, really, all denominations believe that. They all would say, well, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. We believe it's verbally inspired. That is, every word in it was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And so when we read the Bible, we're not reading the ideas of Matthew or Mark or Luke or John or Paul or James or Jude. We are reading the very Word of God. And we all agree on that. That's a good thing to, to agree on it. The second thing that all true Christians believe is the virgin birth of Jesus. They believe that Jesus Christ was not the son of Joseph or the son of any other human, that he was the divinely sent son of God and that Mary bore him into this world without ever having had relationship with any man. And so we believe that what the Bible says, that the Spirit of God, the angel of the Lord, came to Mary and said that this child that you will bear will be the Son of God. She said, how can that be? I've never had sexual relations with any man. And the angel said, this is the child that will be born of you will be unique, the Son of God. And so we, the reason the virgin birth is important, by the way, is that if Jesus had been born as the son of Adam and Adam's line, he would have been a sinner because all humans born into the line of Adam are born with the stain of sin on them. So if he were a sinner, then he would have needed a Savior. He couldn't have been a Savior. He would have had to have had a Savior. So that's the reason the virgin birth is not only important, it is essential. It is essential. So the verbal inspiration of Scripture, the virgin birth, and then I had to stretch to find a V for this one, but the vicarious atonement. Now, vicarious is not a word we use every day, is it? Y'all probably use it at the hospital. Uh, no, they can't think of a time you use. A vicarious means to do something in someone else's place. So uh, occasionally, you'll hear people having a vicarious wedding. That is, the husband may be a soldier. He's off in Afghanistan or somewhere, and he and his wife get married, and someone stands in for him, and he says, I am the vicarious groom. The groom couldn't be here, so I'm standing here, and he doesn't get to kiss the bride, of course, because that's too vicarious. But, uh, but they, they get married vicariously. That doesn't happen very often, but I've heard of it. 
But the vicarious atonement means that Jesus, that virgin-born, heaven-sent Son of God, went to a cross and died, but he didn't die for any of his sin. He did die for sin, but he didn't have any sin, so he couldn't die for his sin, but he died in our place. That's what vicarious means, to do something in the place of somebody else. So he died in our our place. And so every true Christian believes that salvation comes to us through faith in the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ. So he was he died on the cross and he was buried and so the fourth thing that we all believe is the 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 uh, victorious resurrection of Jesus. Jesus rose from the dead. He was born of a virgin. Based on the verbal inspiration of Scripture, he was born of a virgin. He vicariously died in our place, but he didn't stay dead. Hallelujah. Amen. Okay, amen. By the way, I was talking to Mike this last week over in Bulgaria. He was asking how things were going here at Bear Creek, and I said, well, it's going good. But I said, all my ameners are not coming right now. And so it's sometimes like preaching more to uh, mannequins than uh, y'all are good-looking mannequins, so nothing wrong with that. But I said, I sure miss having some response. I miss having a, an amen every once in a while. So uh, uh, maybe sometime during the message today, I'll, I'll point to you, and that'll be your signal to say amen. That's kind of like fishing for a compliment, but I, it'll help me out a little bit. And, uh, and I'll say, the mannequins speak, okay? All right, that's great. All right. Uh, so let me get back to my, my fourth V is the victorious resurrection of Jesus. In fact, our, our faith, our faith really anchors in that glorious truth. The Apostle Paul said, if Christ is not risen from the dead then our faith is in vain, and, and we are liars because we say that Jesus rose from the dead. And all those who saw him, and many, many, many people saw him after his resurrection, up to 500 on one occasion, saw Jesus alive after he had risen from the dead. And so we believe in the victorious resurrection. So you've got the four V's so far. You've got the verbal inspiration of Scripture. You've got the virgin birth of Jesus. You've got the vicarious atonement. If you can think of a better V, you can use it there. And then the victorious resurrection. And then the fifth thing is the visible return of Jesus to this world. He is coming back. Amen. All right. Very good. All right. He is coming again. And, and so much of the New Testament talks about what Jesus did for us, who he was and what he did and what he taught. But almost every book in the New Testament mentions the fact that Jesus is coming again. The only book I can think of that may not mention the second coming of Jesus is the little tiny personal letter to Philemon, which was dealing with a specific issue of a runaway slave that was returning to his master. But other than that, every book 
in the Bible. Jesus himself talked about it. Jesus talked about his second coming. In fact, uh, look in Mark chapter 13. Uh, this just kind of little something I just suddenly thought of that I want to throw in extra. Uh, Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 32. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you'll see that Jesus is talking here. These are the words of Jesus. And he's, been, he's talking about his return. And he said, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. He said, in my humanity, some things are even kept from me. But the Father knows. And then he says in verse 33, be on guard. Keep awake. Keep awake. That's a verse that we're going to see a little bit more today. For you do not know when the time will come. Then verse 34, it is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper, stay awake. Second time he says that there. Therefore, third time, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep, which is the opposite of Staying awake. And then, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. You, you think, amen? All right. You think maybe Jesus is trying to emphasize something here for all of us. Stay awake. Stay awake. Is that the last verse in Mark 13? I think it is. Yeah. So five times and then one negative uh, to not be asleep. Six times in that little short passage, he says, I'm coming again. Stay awake. Be ready. Be prepared. And that was what we talked about last week was being prepared. Now, uh, as far as the second coming is concerned, uh, I, I said all Christians agree on the fact that Jesus is coming again. It's just clear in the Bible. Now, as to exactly as to the timing and the way it goes, there are a lot of a lot of variations, you know. Uh, I, I have dear, uh, trusted, valued, godly men who differ on some of the matters about the second coming, and uh, I love to read all of them. Here's the thing I know: they all believe Jesus is coming back. They all believe He's coming back. And there is a teaching over in Revelation chapter 20 where it talks about a thousand-year period of time where Jesus will rule and reign on this earth. And so since it's a thousand years, we call that the millianum. Milli meaning a thousand, annum meaning years, the millianum, the millennium, the millennium. So... The Bible is clear. Now, some people think that's figurative. Some people think that that's uh, uh, literal. I believe it's literal, that Jesus will reign on earth from Jerusalem for a thousand years on this earth. That's the millennium. And so Christians are divided in three camps concerning the millennium. One, there's a group called the post-millennialists. That is, they believe Jesus is going to come back at the end of the millennium. You say, well, 
Well, how do we have the millennium then? The millennium is a thousand years of peace and prosperity and blessedness and worship and praise. And there was, up back in the 1800s, 17 and 1800s, a group of people who taught that gradually, 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 the world was going to get better and better and better and that Christians were going to take the gospel all over the world, that billions of people would come to faith in Christ and that technology and and, uh, medicine and communication would all improve and that, that we ourselves, that the church would usher in a thousand years of perfect peace on earth. And that at the end of that thousand years, Jesus would come back. Now, there aren't many people who are post-millennialists today. Because World War I got a lot of them. World War II got most of the rest of them. The Great Depression in there also got a bunch of them. Uh, Vietnam. And, and, and then, of course, if you were just look at the news today, there just aren't many people believe that our world is getting better and better and better. Uh, may be getting smarter, but it's not getting wiser. It may be getting uh, 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 better in, in the sense of technology and medicine, but it's not getting better morally. So most post-millennialists don't even exist anymore. And then there's a group called pre-millennialists, and I am a pre-millennialist. I believe that the word pre, the, the prefix, prefix pre means before. Post means after. But pre means before. That is, we believe that Jesus is going to come back and then we have the millennium. That Jesus will come and he will be the king on earth. He will rule with perfect justice, perfect righteousness, and with perfect authority. And that he will lead, direct, and and be king over the earth for a thousand years and will bring about a thousand years of perfect peace. And we read about this not just in in, in, uh, Revelation chapter 20, but many of the prophets, Isaiah especially, and many many of the prophets described a day when under the authority of God's Messiah, the earth would be perfect, that there would be a a time of blessing, a time of prosperity, that sin would be vanquished and that sinners would be judged and that uh, during that period of time, everything would just be glorious and wonderful. And uh, that's a whole doctrine. The millennium is something we could go on about for about a thousand years. And, uh, but uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful study. In fact, there are books uh, that deal just with the millennium. There's one called The Millennium. It was written by one of the professors at Dallas Theological Seminary. And by the way, pre-millennialism uh, is only a little over 100 years old, 120 years old. Uh, when the nation of Israel began to revive... When the nation, when, when, when Israel, when the Jews begin to go back to the land of Palestine, don't ever call it Palestine to a Jew. That's an insult to them. You call it the land of Israel. But when, when the Jews 
all around the world began to filter back to the land of Palestine. J.N. Darby, who was a Irish Bible teacher, began to see that some things were happening that seemed to line up with biblical teachings that he had studied. And he said in 1880 that he believed that the Jews were going to go back to Israel. And he believed that Israel would again become a nation. Because he said, when I read my Bible, all of the scriptures that talk about the coming of Jesus, he comes back to the Jewish nation of Israel. And therefore, if the Bible says it, then the Jews have to be in Israel. They have to be. In fact, he says they even have to have Jerusalem as their capital. And he was laughed at. I mean, he was mocked. And then men like a C.I. Schofield who put together a whole Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible. And in that Schofield Bible, he shows every reference in the Old and New Testament that talks about the rapture of the church and the return of Jesus and the millennium. Is this interesting to y'all? Okay. Nobody's bored. Okay. Good. Uh, I'm glad. I'm not bored either. I'm, I'm excited about this. And uh, so C.I. Schofield uh, published the Schofield Reference Bible. Men like Harry Ironside, who was the pastor of Moody Bible Church up in Chicago, he began to teach pre-millennial teaching. He began to say, the Bible says, this was like in the 1920s and 30s, and he said the Bible says that Israel has to, the Jews have to be back in their land. And that Israel has to be a nation. And, and, and that Jerusalem has to be the capital of, of, the, of Israel. <clears throat> and again, I mean, he was scoffed at. You can go back and read some of the attacks on him. It was uh, unbearable almost. And then in 1926, Lewis Sperry Chafer founded a school in Dallas, Texas. And it was called Dallas Theological Seminary. Almost 100 years ago now, 1926. And that became the, the bastion of premillennial teaching. And they had some of the greatest professors, Dr. Dwight Pentecost and, and others, uh, 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 Dr. Schaefer, of course, and uh, Dr. Ryrie, who also did a, a study Bible called the Ryrie Study Bible. I've worn out two of them. And, uh, and they taught pre-millennial teaching. That is that Jesus is coming back before the millennium. That makes sense, doesn't it? It really does make sense. Well, then there, there's a third group, and they're called ah-millennial. Ah-millennials, they believe that there's really not going to be a millennium. They believe that that thousand years is just a, a metaphor or a figurative, a figure of speech. And uh, so, so they, they kind of say there is no millennium. The little ah means no. It's the, the Greek negative. So an atheist, an atheist, is a person who says no God. Interestingly, when we get amused, the word muse means to think. And so when you're amused, it means you're not thinking. 
So let's watch out on our amusement, okay? Let's muse instead of amuse, okay? Uh, chasing some rabbits here this morning. Let me get back to the main uh, thing. And so they said there, there's really no millennium. And there are a lot of godly teachers today who are in the amillennial crowd, and I appreciate them, I, I listen to them, but I just don't agree with them. I believe that Jesus is coming again, and it'll be in this order, that gradually, gradually, the whole world, the whole earth is going to become more and more uh, irreligious and that uh, it's going to get worse. And we're certainly seeing that. Now, I will admit that there are a lot of good things happening in third world countries, especially in sub-Saharan Africa and even in Iran. Thousands, thousands, thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus. And, uh, uh, and I, I'm very excited about that. I love to read my missions reports to see that God is working mightily in many, many poor nations. But in America and in Great Britain and in most of Europe, especially Western Europe, the, the countries that used to be the missionary-sending countries are now in need of missionaries. They are now in need of somebody to bring the gospel to us and to others. But here are the things that the premillennialists said have to happen or, or that will happen as we get closer and closer and closer to the day of the Lord's return. One, that there would be the restoration of Israel, the restoration of Israel. And by the way, when did that happen? In my lifetime. 1948. In May of 1948, Israel became a nation. After the Second World War and all of the uh, separating of the countries and the lands and everything like that, it was voted by the United Nations that Israel would be given national status. It was a shock. It was a shock to everybody. And the Arab countries all around Israel, I mean, and they surround Israel. They said on the day that Israel declares itself as a nation, we will drive them into the sea and there will be no Israel. But some of the most exciting reading you'll ever do is to read what happened immediately after that as these Arab nations uh, gathered together to push Israel into the sea. Israel fought back, and they fought back with broomsticks painted black to look like guns, and they threw firecrackers and, and, and would stand up with a gun that wasn't a gun and hold it and throw out firecracker and go, bow, 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 and the Arab nations ran. Uh, it, it's amazing just to read the story of how that God protected them and kept them in the land and gave them the land. And then, was it 1967 or 73, when, when, when did Jerusalem become the capital of, uh, of Israel? I can't remember. I should know that. Anybody know that? Okay. But, but anyway, now, today, you go to Israel and you say, Where's the capital city of Israel? They said, well, of course, it's Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem is the capital city. And the Bible taught that Israel would be restored. The Jewish people would be in possession of Israel. It would be their capital city. The Bible taught that before the coming again of Jesus, there would be a global spread of the gospel. And right now, the gospel is in every major language in the world, and even in many of the minor languages. And Rick, do you have any idea how many languages are left? There's not many, are there? And the Wycliffe Bible translators and others, and thanks to technology and so forth, <coughs> the gospel is spreading globally. And uh, that there would be a marked increase in travel and knowledge. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4 says that knowledge would increase and that men would travel, be going to and fro. And, of course, we hadn't done so much of it during the lockdown. But prior to that and, and after this is over, people will be zipping about here and there. And, uh, and certainly knowledge is increasing, isn't it? Maybe not wisdom, but they say that... I don't remember, I've read how knowledge has doubled and how that it took like 500 years for it to double. And then it took 100 years for it to double again. Then it took 12 years for it to double again. And then four years for it to double again. And now it's doubling exponentially. It's in incredible. You take your little iPhone in your pocket, and it's, it holds more information than the whole building of those original IBM computers. And it'll do things. You can answer. You can get answers, even if it's wrong answers a lot of the time. You can get answers to any question, any question. You can ask, uh, when was uh, Dallas Theological Seminary founded and who was the founder? It'll pop right up and tell you, Louis Sperry Schaefer was the founder. In 1920, what did I say, 23 or 27, 20? Uh, you can just ask you. It'll tell you. Don't do it now. But uh, it's amazing. Language, I mean, uh, knowledge is multiplying, and people are traveling to and fro. Uh, the Bible says that before Christ comes, Israel will be surrounded by enemies, those who hate Israel, those who are determined to destroy Israel. You look at a map of the Middle East, and right there in the middle of the Middle East is the little tiny nation of Israel, smaller than the state of New Jersey. It's so tiny, and it's surrounded by massive nations with massive armies who hate Israel with a passion. That's the reason every day of my life I pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I pray for God's protection of Israel. And uh, uh, there's so many, so many other things we could, could list. But all of these things are happening. All of these things have happened. So that makes me believe that even though we don't know the day, we don't know the hour, we certainly don't know the minute, when Jesus is coming again, we know that the signs of the times are all pointing to a, an imminent return. That is that he could come at any minute. So what should we do? We should stay awake. Stay awake. Now, that was my introduction.
to my sermon. Uh, so today the front porch is going to be bigger than the whole house. So let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And Paul has said, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. He says, I've taught you, I've told you, you're not in darkness, for you are all children of light, children of the day. And it's good to know that we are not in darkness. We are children of the day. We are not of the night and of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep like others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Be ready, be sober, be awake. Many of the great battles in history, one-sided battles, were won because the soldiers were drunk on the other side. When the Persians conquered uh, Babylon, Belshazzar, the king, he was, the Bible says that he had thrown a great feast and all the people were drunk. And on the night while they were all drunk, the Persian soldiers managed to come through. Uh, they dammed up the, the Tigris River and they were able to slip under the walls of that city, go and unlock the gates, and the Persians defeated the Babylonians, who were far superior, but they lost because they were drunk. Same way with the night that Washington crossed the Delaware River at Valley Forge. It was Christmas night, and all the British soldiers... They were celebrating, and they were all drunk. And uh, it gave Washington the advantage. And there are many, many other great battles that you read about in history that were lost because the soldiers were drunk on the losing side. So uh, he said, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. Know a few people that were drunk all day, but but generally speaking, people do their drinking at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Faith, hope, and love. For God has not destined us for wrath. By the way, that's what happens during the tribulation is the wrath of God is poured out on this unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world. He said, but God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, this is one of the reasons that I believe the rapture of the church will take place before the Great Tribulation. Because during the Great Tribulation, 
the wrath of God is poured out on this world. And God is not going to pour out his wrath on his bride. And so uh, this, that's just one reason. I believe. For God is not destined up us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So he says, be sober, be awake. We're sons of the day. He says to us, wake up, clean up, dress up, put on the the full armor of God. And he talks about hope here, that we wear hope and uh, that the helmet of the hope of salvation. By the way, the word hope in the Bible doesn't mean something like we, like we aren't sure of and, and that we hope it's going to happen. Like we say, well, I hope this happens. I hope that happens. That means it has contingency. In the Bible, the word for hope means certain confidence, absolute sureness. So we don't hope for Jesus to come back in the sense that we wish he would and we hope he might. We have this hope in us knowing that when he does come back, which is a certainty, that he is going to rescue us out of this evil world. It's, uh, I used to wa- love to watch the westerns, the western movies where a, a, a fort would be surrounded by the enemy and uh, the people on the inside were saying, uh, how are we going to make it out? And suddenly a rider comes through and says, don't worry, the cavalry is coming. They'll be over that hill there in just a few minutes. And everybody breathes a sigh of relief. And then as the movie goes on, and it looks like the enemy is just beginning to make their final press. Suddenly you hear the trumpet, and over the ridge comes the cavalry. And everybody goes, yay! They, we had, they had hope because they had a certainty that they were coming. So he says uh, to, to put on the full armor, the the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. Salvation gives us hope, doesn't it? Salvation gives us hope. And again, it gives us hope for our soiled past. And I tell you, I just went down this last Thursday, my grandson and I went down to speak to a group of men who are in a, a drug rehab Center, And we got to spend two or three hours with them, talking to them, sharing our testimonies, and, uh, and just preaching the gospel, sharing with them. And uh, one of them said, oh, you don't know my past. You don't know my past. I said, but you don't know my Jesus. Because he can totally obliterate all the guilt of all your past. And he did that for me. And he'll do that for you. And he'll do it for anybody who puts their trust in him and turns from their sin. So salvation gives us hope for our soiled past. It also gives us hope for our struggling present. Uh, There's a lot going on in our world today. 
how do we deal? How do we deal with all the pressure? We do it by saying, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So he gives us hope for our past, hope for our present, and then glorious hope for our future. Uh, There'll come a day, unless Jesus comes back very soon, there'll come a day that, that I'll die. And when you get the word, oh, Brother Nick is dead, don't you dare believe it. Because on that day, I'll be just as alive and even more alive than I've ever been. And what a glorious day, what a wonderful day that will be when I see Jesus face to face. And that's the hope that salvation brings. He gives me hope for my past, forgiveness through his blood. Hope for my present, strength by the Spirit of God in me. Hope for my future, absolute certainty that when I close my eyes in this world, I open them and see the face of Jesus. And so that is the hope that we have. So uh, to conclude, I would just say this. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to be able to say as you put your head on your pillow tonight, I know for certain that I know for certain that I know for certain that if I didn't wake up in the morning here, I'd wake up there because my sins have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus and my life has been empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit and my certainty, my future is secure because of the promise that he's made to me. Do you know that you know him? That's the real question. Do you know that you know him? If not, I'd love to visit with you, talk with you, and uh, just share with you the things we shared with those young men. Going back this next Tuesday, I'm very excited about establishing a relationship with these young men who are there who who say, my life has been a wreck and I don't see any future. And I want to say to them, Jesus unwrecks wrecks. He is able to take wrecks and make something beautiful of their life and your life and my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you today for the glorious hope that we have in Jesus. I thank you for the hope that we have in the fact that he totally forgives every sin in our past and in our present, even in our future. I thank you that we have hope for the struggle, knowing that the one who lives in us has greater strength than all the lying, deceiving, uh, dividing lies of this world. And I thank you for the wonderful hope that we have for our future. And Lord, what a day. What a day that will be when my Jesus I will see. When I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be.
In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We invite you to like us on Facebook or visit our website, www.bearcreekbaptist.org. If you're not a member of another church, we would like to invite you to join us in person and get to know us and let us get to know you. Have a great week and may the Lord richly bless you.